Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This episode is brought to you by SRB Field Rests. Your shotgun, bow, or rifle is an extension of who you are as a hunter. Whether you're hunting snows in a muddy mess of a field, mallards in the marsh, or whitetail from a ground blind, SRB Field Rests has your back. A local Kansas company that provides an easy to use, simple, and ergonomically effective solution to just awkwardly holding onto your gun or your bow when you do not need to. Allowing you to have more freedom, comfort, and safety in the field. Enter discount code FOULFRONT at checkout for 10% off your order of any SRB Field Rest today. This episode is also brought to you by Oak Barn Beef, a direct-to-consumer, family-owned farm that delivers high-quality, DNA-tested, dry-aged Nebraska beef from their family to yours. You can select from a wide variety of boxes. My personal favorite is the Husker Beef Package, which combines jerky, ground beef, steaks, and a brisket. These packages are perfect for families, get-togethers, out-of-town hunts, or for you outfitters looking to upgrade your table fare for your clients. Order yours today at oakbarnbeef.com. And what's really important is that we band together, we speak with one voice. And I was like, you sure? Because I've got two kids, I don't want it to ruin your hunt. And you're like, yeah, yeah, just coming home with me. Just take your tub. Like I said, it would have killed a normal man, but I'm not normal, but you know. When you said, why do you want to talk about that? To me, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, there's so many different factors that go into this decision. Enjoy it for what it is. Every moment of it. If, if, if you're only going to shoot one duck. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hey, Foul Front, it's Hannah from Oak Barn Beef. We're giving away a box of steaks, jerky, and more premium beef exclusively for the listeners of the Foul Front. To sign up, head over to foulfront.com and click on the Oak Barn Beef Giveaway tab to enter into this giveaway. Thanks, and we can't wait for you to try our Nebraska-raised and dry-aged premium beef. All right, welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast, and today I have a very special guest with me. I've got Lan Tawney from BHA, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, And so, Land is a Montana native. Uh, he's a veteran in the conservation fight uh, through multiple positions held in the Theodore Roosevelt uh, Conservation Program, the National Wildlife Federation, and in short, Land has spent his professional career building, energizing, and activating hunters and anglers to carry on our rich 
Outdoor Legacy. He's also a father. And I've been told if he could only hunt one more time in his life, he'd find himself in a duck blind. Land, welcome to the foul front. Uh, how to do on the intro? Uh, awesome, man. Uh, I'm going to have you introduce me every single time. Ben, that was sweet. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And one thing I did miss, actually, Land is the CEO and uh, president <laughs> of BHA, not just with uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So, um, yeah, how's the, how's the weather up there in Montana? You know, it's like it's a, one of those kind of balmy days at like 63 degrees, a little cloudy. Um, we're supposed to get some weather this weekend and maybe that'll be good for hunting. But right now, I think it'd be better to be probably tossing a uh, uh, line to a trout versus uh, going and hunting ducks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the what's the, the migration report? Saying migration, I mean, we're starting to see, you know, a few northern birds, but nothing really yet. You know, we need a big cold kind of to bump them down and so um no big you know orange legged beast yet yeah I, I saw a couple mallards out when i was scouting today but uh have you been out hunting uh, at all this season i've uh, gone a couple times with my kids i've got two young kids and we've gotten out um and uh had a couple days where we had some new hunters with us as well and so um introduced them kind of the to what it's all about and so we've had you know dogs made a few retrieves but there's the days um, the good days have not happened yet, but uh, that will change at some point. Awesome. So what's the what's the game plan for tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow, so I've got this new boat that I bought. I bought a Lumacraft, like 14-foot boat, and um, I haven't taken it out yet. So tomorrow, I'm going to take the kids out. We'll do a little scouting, and then Sunday, do it for real. And so there's a little place north of Missoula. I'm in Missoula, Montana, so western part of Montana, and we're not really in a flyway we're kind of on the edge of the pacific and edge of the central but uh there's a river north of us it's got a bunch of uh grain fields and some corn on the outside of it so we like going up there so we're going to check it out and figure out where we want to set up for sunday and then uh you know try it out awesome awesome you said you're taking your kids out again i am i've got uh, an 11 year old daughter and a nine-year-old son and they've both you know same thing as kind of me i was in the duck line with my father you know four or five years old and so i've done the same thing with them and so they love getting out they love watching the dog work and they love watching those ducks get tricked <laughs> awesome good stuff uh and then you do have uh, a black lab uh Thule? tool Thule, yep Thule. she's uh, named after like the Thule reed so yeah. um, have you ever heard of, like the Thule elk it's kind of like she's the Thule black lab and um, she's sitting with me in the office right now. I just said her name. She picked up her head, which usually she's just sleeping. She's only two and a half, um, so she's got some things to learn. But she's one of my probably more calm labs I've ever had, and she's fun to be around and then just super athletic in the field. Awesome. So are you guys hunting from the boat, or is the boat just uh, the means of conveyance? Boats just gets us up there. We'll get a blind at some point for the boat. and hunt out of it that way but no it's just to get us up to the edge of an island and then we'll walk to the other side of the island and set up there and that's kind of there's a bunch of islands we're going to look at tomorrow to see which one we want to get on awesome yeah we have we have so much water down here in the flint hills of kansas uh we are places that we normally are walking into are 18 foot deep right now so we are put we are putting together a little redneck armada right now it seems like the only way we can really get after them redneck uh you know little john boats uh with some burlap and you know 20 foot decoy lines that's how we're kind of rolling down here right now so, and you guys gonna hunt out of the boat then yeah so I, this year i got a um i got a kayak which has been pretty awesome for scouting um i don't take it any place uh you know i don't go across big open water but uh, i stick to the trees and, and the shore but yeah, uh, we got a couple John boats and, you know, we, we can tuck them up into the, we're hunting out of the tops of trees right now. So, um, it's pretty easy cover, honestly. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of like different kind of timber hunting, right? The tops of trees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've definitely, uh, we've had to adapt, uh, but we we're still, still getting after it. And this, I'm, I'm good for you. I, it's almost, I kind of like it. Uh, the rest of my group does not like it. Uh, but I kind of like it because it's not as much walking because I always feel like I'm the guy that has to carry the most for some reason. And so <laughs> I'm not walking in anywhere. I'm just putting in my kayak and I'm just paddling places and uh, it's pretty nice. So That's cool, man. That's cool. It's always fun to kind of try new things too. And sometimes you're forced into doing that. And, you know, when you are forced, you 
figure out things that you never would have done before. So sounds yeah. like that's what your program is. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Land, where did you grow up? So I'm a fifth generation Montanan. I uh, grew up here in Missoula. Um, and, uh, you know, grew up here hunting, uh, with my father, like I said before, kind of in a, in duck blinds, you know, we've got spring creeks around here. So when it gets super cold, you know, those birds have nowhere else to go. And that's when those rivers freeze up and they've got these spring creeks. And so, um, you know, tall cottonwoods and they got to come in pretty hot. Um, and so I, I grew up doing that with my dad. And, um, you know, I think I remember one of my favorite memories is going to the duck blind early in the morning and you know, having a couple hundred birds lift off of the spring creek and, and then, you know, having to come back and fours and fives and tens or whatever all day. And, um, you know, I couldn't even shoot a gun, but I just remember that like it was yesterday and kind of have a, just the sound of those birds taking off is something I'll never forget. Do you remember the, the first uh, duck you shot? I remember a lot of misses. Um, <laughs> my dad gave me like a single gauge, a uh, single shot, 20 gauge. And so I would carry like another one in my mouth. And I think I would always like try to shoot so fast. So I could stick that other one in there. And I missed a lot early. Um, but I do remember I was actually hunting north on this river. We're going to go hunt this weekend and uh, was by myself with our black lab walking up the bank as my dad was and his friend were picking up decoys and uh these two mallards i could see them coming up the river from a long ways away and so i hid behind this tree and i swung on one swung on both of them and shot one of them lo and behold and then my my first black lab i've ever had uh jumped out and grabbed that bird for me and i remember the rejoicing that i had with the dog and then the definite uh the beaming i guess that came out of my father and i you know i I'll never forget that piece of just the kind of smile he had, and, you know, and uh, bringing that home and eating it that night. Um, it was something pretty darn special. That's great. That's great. Now you said fifth generation Montanan. That's uh, so like your family must have settled or like helped settle Montana, right? As yeah, we were uh, my first family member that was born in Montana was born in here in 1872, just south of Missoula in a town called Stevensville, which was the uh, first incorporated town in Montana. Um, you know, we're not we didn't we didn't come here for the land. We came here for the timber. Uh, we came from Nova Scotia. We we're Irish. Came from across the pond. Went to Nova Scotia and followed timber kind of to Montana. And then um, they ended up being the first mortars in the Bitterroot Valley, which is. That funeral home is still in our family today. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's cool. Uh, you know, being able to, you know, be surrounded kind of by your family history. Mine's everywhere. Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, Colorado, it's everywhere. But um, that's cool. All right. So you grew up in Montana. Where did you go to school? So I went to school uh, for a little bit out in Seattle at Seattle University. And then uh, my father got sick with cancer and passed away and so you know that brought me home and i will tell you that that's like kind of the silver lining of his death is that i was kind of out in seattle screwing around and then i came home and um, ended up getting a wildlife biology degree at the university of montana and uh, kind of set me on my path of conservation i guess from there now your dad he was a he was a pretty big conservationist as well correct yeah, he and my mom were the uh, first full-time kind of conservation lobbyists at the state legislature here in Montana. Then my dad went to law school later in life and um, ended up being the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation when they first incorporated, you know, when they were still up in northwest Montana. Um, and I was with them until he passed away. But this was right when, like, conservation easements were starting to become a big deal. Yeah. And so, you know, there's refuges and, and, and private land all over Montana that has my dad's kind of signature on it. And, you know, with the Elk Foundation, I mean, I've got a picture in my office where he's uh, holding a big bucket of Budweiser in one hand and a big bucket of Bud Light in the other hand. They had just gotten a check from Budweiser for $500,000, which was their first big check and ended up going for a purchase just outside of Yellowstone for some migrating elk. So, um, you know, with his work and with my mom's work, I've always kind of been around conservation. And so yeah, I think it was, I was a, lot of os yeah. <laughs> a lot of osmosis. I think, you know, growing up, I was interested in it, but, you know, not too involved. And then, you know, I think again, the silver lining of my dad passing away, I got serious about, you know, kind of what I want to do in the world and really settled on conservation and kind of carrying on his legacy and others. Yeah, and you have a, a sister that is also in in conservation. Right? I, th I think she didn't she work for DU for a while. Yeah, she was their uh, water lobbyist out in DC for God, she, 
she's going to listen to this and yell at me for not knowing, but I think it was like six, seven years. Um, and then she just moved back to Montana and she is working for the Montana conservation voters. So she's uh, got conservation deep in her blood as well. So when you're growing up and you're like a little kid, um, I guess it's, I wouldn't say it's too unique because people, a lot of people out there um, get, you know, the conservation business from their parents um, growing up, but you guys, especially, it sounds like, um, what was, you know, what was that like? What was it like growing up uh, being in a conservation at the forefront um, of probably a lot of things that you guys did? You know, I think that, again, I don't know if I necessarily realized it. you know, my young daughter at 11 right now, she's definitely understands what's going on and um, is super engaged and kind of in the middle of it. I think, you know, for me, it was like going to like the first elk camp that the Elk Foundation had. And there was like 200 people there in Spokane, Washington. And, you know, now they, you know, their elk camp probably draws, you know, 20, 30,000 people. And so it was kind of seeing those humble beginnings, I think. And then being around the people that helped start that, like Bob Munson and, and others and Gary Wolf, um, to name another one. And, and like these really, you know, I guess magnanimous kind of leaders and kind of the bootstraps and like picking that up. So it was, you know, we were getting yanked to meetings where that was the Elk Foundation or their conservation organizations like all the time. And I think as a kid, um, I got to meet a lot of people. Um, but I don't think the message really set in, to be totally honest, until again, I think until my father passed away. And then I kind of realized, you know, I mean, you start looking at his life and, you know, um, talking to folks about kind of his contributions and you're like, whoa, that's what that was all about. And so I think, you know, that's really when, my kind of light bulb went off in my head. It's like, that's kind of what I want to do. And yeah, so, what, you know, made, what year did your father pass? It was uh, 95. So 95. a ways away now, 24 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and just so everybody knows, how, how old a guy are you, Land? <laughs> I'm just a young pup, though. I think I'm a young pup, uh, but I'm now I'm realizing I'm probably not. But I'm, uh, I'm 44 years old. So I, that happened when I was uh, 19 years old. All right. All right. If I told, okay, so I can't, I, you can't say hunting, fishing, or uh, trying to preserve public lands and habitat. Uh, you can't answer with any of those to this next question. Okay. What are your, what are your hobbies? Oh, so little known fact, I like to get up every single morning and do the crossword and the Sudoku that's in the paper. And when it is, when I do those and finish them, I feel like I'm ready to just crush the day. And when I don't, I feel like I'm off a little bit. Uh, it's something my grandfather used to do and I picked up from him and I was horrible at it. And now I'm getting much better at it. So that's one. Uh, the other one is, is I, uh, I grew up playing soccer and um, I've coached soccer and my kids uh, are playing soccer now. And so I'm helping coach them. And so I'd say soccer is another one. And then, wow, I don't know if I can have a third one for you. Um <laughs> I'm trying to think. I can't say those other words. Um, I mean, I'm kind of a bird nerd too. I will say that uh, when I was going to school and uh, everybody was, you know, like we took ornithology and there was a bunch of bird nerds in there. I was like, man, these people are crazy about birds. And it's kind of weird. Uh, now, you know, which I guess it kind of gets us into the conservation maybe. But uh, when I'm out in the woods, like knowing different species of birds or finding out more about birds, I've turned into a fairly big bird nerd as well. So that's, I think that that's like a step in a lot of uh, hunters or conservationists, you know, path, I guess, because I do, I've noticed that some of the people that I know that are a little bit more advanced or, or well-traveled through oh, there. Oh, that's what you're saying is advanced, okay. <laughs> a little bit older or well-traveled or something, however you want to say it, whatever euphemism it is. Yeah. They're always like, ah, hey, look, it's a, uh, it's a red-winged blackbird. And I go, right. is, it, is it a duck? And you know, and it, no, but it's it's still important to know that, um, yeah. and uh, things of that nature. But I, I guess uh, that's kind of interesting. I guess if you give somebody a checklist of birds, it might you know spur them on a little bit. But I'm not I'm not really a, like there's people that have like life you know lists and stuff. I'm not that guy. Uh, what I do like is like I think it enhances my time outdoors, and so you know when I'm in the in the marsh in particular, and you got a great blue heron or something that flies in and then blows up in your decoys and, and you know, sounds like a damn pterodactyl as it's flying off. Or you have, you know, a kingfisher that I've seen this multiple times where they'll catch a fish, you know, sideways in their mouth after they dive. 
and they'll be flying by you. And as they're flying by you, they flip that up in the air and swallow it like midair. Like they're like the Michael Jordans of like the bird world. Like it's, it's, it's just, I think it just enhances my time out there, you know? And, uh, and so that's why I think I'm so into, I've become more and more of a bird nerd. I've been kind of doing that with plants recently. I just, uh, somebody kind of told me like one, or I, I think I heard it somewhere, but they're like, yeah, you know, these super, you know, super hunters are sitting in a tree and they don't even know what kind of tree it is. And I like, right. I the tree, I was like what tree am I in? Oh, okay, I'm in an oak tree. <laughs> All right, good. Um, and the things of those nature um, and just walking around and, and not realizing, oh, look at how natural this place is. Well, it's not really because there's a bunch of red ferns there or, or you know, red cedar, excuse me, and, and things of that nature. And uh, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a good like, little step as well. So maybe maybe uh, birding and ornithology will be uh, one of my next things I get into, but we'll see. Next time we talk, you'll be all bird nerding it out. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so you finish up at, uh, you said, was it uh, Missoula? Universi- University of Montana. University of Montana. Um, I guess, how many colleges do you guys have in uh, Missouri? Montana? Yeah, or, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> I was thinking Missouri um, breaks and... Yeah, my bad. I mean, we have. Uh, I mean, we have the two big schools. We have University of Montana, which is here in Missoula, and that's home of the Grizz, the Go Grizz. And then you have Montana State, which is over in Bozeman, and that's the Bobcats. Um, and then you have, you know, I think some schools that are associated with both of them. But those are the two big main schools, I would say, in Montana. Okay. Um, you have some satellites, and then you know a couple of other schools like Carroll College and Helena, and then um, another school in Butte. But the most majority. Um, because uh, college-wise, it's just in Missoula and, and Bozeman. All right, awesome. All right, so you finish up at school, and then uh, you know you got to go pay those student loans off, uh, right? Where do you find yourself? So um, I painted the houses for you know that summer, and I decided that's not what I wanted to do. And um, and so there was an organization just starting at that point. And it was the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Uh, one of the guys who had helped start the Elk Foundation, Bob Munson, was kind of running the show there. And so he didn't have any paid positions. And so I went in there and volunteered and did data entry, did cold calling. Um, and that all worked into a part-time position eventually and then a full-time position. And so I worked for them for three and a half years. And um, I think besides getting to work with Bob Munson, I got to work with a guy named Fred Myers, who I learned a ton from. And then the one that I probably uh, cherished the most that I got to be around at such a young age was a guy by the name of Jim Range. And Jim Range is no longer with us, but he was a lawyer from D.C. Uh, he uh, was chief of staff for Howard Baker, helped write the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, uh, big, huge waterfowl hunter. Uh, he, tra- he trained his uh, black lab on the Senate floor um, in those aisles. You know, we all know that you need like a narrow place to train a young dog, and that's what he decided to do. And so he's just a just a kind of a character. And um, so I got to be around, you know, him. And, and so I really – my time at TRCP is, is really, I think, where I started to cut my teeth um, in the conservation world, and I couldn't you know, be more thankful for that. Awesome. Awesome. So then uh, coming out of the TRCP, what, you know, what were some of the big projects that you kind of remember from uh, that you worked on there? I think the biggest one I would tell you is when we got open fields passed through the farm bill. And so open fields is it's, it's the common way to talk about it, but it's basically helps um, states with their public access to private land programs. So, you know, we've got a huge one here in Montana called Block Management, which is like 8 million acres. Um, you've got a good one in Kansas. Um, there's these programs all across the country. Now, back when that happened, so early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of states that have these programs. And so Open Fields was basically established through the Farm Bill to help you know, establish these programs in states that uh, didn't have programs and then also enhance, you know, the programs of states that already had programs. And so to me, I think that was probably one of the bigger uh, victories that we had when I was at TRCP and something I'm pretty proud of. Awesome. Uh, so that would be like the equivalent to Kansas is like Weehaw or. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so like the, and so like the walk-in programs, I mean, if, you know, again, like they, I mean, there's not a lot of money in this program. I mean, fully realized it's like $50 million. So when you think about that split yeah. between 50 states, you know, it's a million bucks a state. And so it doesn't go very far. Sure. 
but it does you know it does help leverage money and you know it's always something that we're trying to increase but uh, you know that's it was it was something i think that you know was desperately needed and i think there's been a great response to it i think um a lot of people so even my especially myself I think that it's it's it gets kind of intimidating trying to follow conservation news. Um, sure, it seems like it's there's a lot of things that are buried. Uh, it seems like there's only one or two sources that you can really get get it from, um, and it's usually you know a third party media company that um, you know already kind of has it watered down for you and uh, digestible. Do you have any tips? for myself and the listeners on how to stay abreast with like the most news uh, when it comes to like conservation issues, things that are going good, things that are going bad, things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, I, this would be a, you know, a selfless plug for backcountry hunters and anglers, but you know, I mean, I think that, you know, we do a good job through our social media and through kind of our email list of keeping people informed, kind of sending that information and then, you know, making it easy for you to take action. Uh, that's what we are as an, advocacy organization you know i would say you know the theodore roosevelt conservation partnership which i used to work for i'd say they're another entity that folks should uh, definitely weigh in with and then you know on waterfowl specific stuff you know ducks unlimited and and delta waterfowl you know they're less uh advocacy organizations you know more habitat and kind of um organizations and and so you know you will get definitely you know and there's we can talk about stuff that we're working on together but the you know, you will get things from them, um, but they're much differently set up than we are uh, that way. Um, but I, I mean, like the great thing about the world we're living in right now is that you can go find information. And I know we're all busy and it's so like the easier that is, the better. But, you know, if there's something that you care about, you, you can get multiple angles, you know, on the great, you know, wild word, world of the interweb. And and so, you know, I, I, I again, Belong to BHA, belong to Delta, belong to Ducks Unlimited. Um, you know, watch what TRCP is doing, but make sure you're doing kind of your own research too. Yeah, kind of good little uh, um, transition there. So let's talk about BHA for a little bit. Um, yeah. What? Go ahead. What is BHA for people that are, you know, they, they hear it everywhere else, but, you know, what is it? Yeah, so, you know, we're a grassroots organization. We were formed around a campfire in 2004. I don't know if you've ever been around with your buddies sitting around a campfire, but that's where, you know, you can solve the world's problems. Yep. Um, and really, when they were, you know, that first kind of initial campfire, they're looking at the playing field. There's all these folks doing good work, whether that's Ducks Unlimited or the Elk Foundation or Mule Deer Foundation, Pheasants Forever. Um, very habitat focused, mostly on private land. They looked at kind of this playing field that is public lands and public waters and nobody was really focused on it. So that was really the impetus of the organization to start is let's, let's make sure this public land is not only accessible to everybody, um, but then when you get there that you have the fish and wildlife habitat. And so that's really, you know, what we've kind of been the mantra for BHA for the last, you know, 15 years or going on 15 years, or I guess we are in 15 years. Um, and we do that at kind of different levels. You know, I think that there's the kind of state kind of local level and whether that's working with like state legislatures on policies, whether that's doing like local cleanups or um, restoration efforts, then you get into kind of watershed level, you know, stuff where we're looking at landscapes and figuring out kind of either, you know, how that's that's managed travel wise or how that's managed uh, resource wise. And that's more of a, that's a big time compromise. And then, you know, all the way out to Washington, D.C. And, you know, we've been, we work on a lot of things out in Washington, D.C. that have, you know, very uh, kind of broad implications for what else is going on around the country. And, um, I mean, one I put, pick out in particular would be the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is the kind of number one access tool that we have in this country. It's been used in 99% of the counties in this country. And it basically provides money to find access, you know, and I... I hunt a lot off rivers here in Montana. We have a great stream access law, but the, you know, the uh, fishing access sites that I, you know, that I put on and at or use to walk in at, those are almost exclusively paid for by the land and water conservation fund. So this has been something that, you know, we've been laser focused on and 
uh, this last spring, we're able to get it permanently authorized, and that's it was a huge win. And now we're looking to like fully fund it. So um, that's kind of the nutshell. You know, I think that that's a quick and dirty. You know, from the really from the you know the local of the local all the way out to you know the big stuff that happens in, in DC. Yeah. So for a listener that uh, is listening that's familiar with Ducks Unlimited uh, and Delta, you know, what are the what are and I I don't mean to compare, but what are some similarities and what are some differences in backhunters, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers? Yeah. So I think you know some similarities is we work very closely uh, on Washington D.C. policy. You know, both of Ducks Unlimited and you know and, and Delta have um, big kind of uh, shops that think about, you know, like kind of that national policy. Mm-hmm. And so whether that's, you know, land and water conservation fund that we already talked about, whether that's uh, the clean water rule, uh, whether that's the North American Conservation Act, there's those things that we work on out in DC. I think the biggest difference between the two or between, I guess, us three um, is that, you know, we don't just work out in DC. We work at like pretty local levels too, and really engage our grassroots that way. You know, I think with Ducks Unlimited in particular, you know, a lot of that money that's raised and kind of the energy that is happening with their volunteers is to, you know, preserve duck habitat and you know, to, uh, you know, restore marshes and stuff. And I think that's amazing work. And, you know, where would we be without them? Um, but our work is, you know, we're doing more and more of that. But the less, like the most majority of what we do is really getting engaged in policy at a, at a local level. And so, you know, making it easy for people to get engaged. And, you know, we don't do, you know, one banquet a year, you know, we're kind of doing activities all the time and, and not to, again, I know that there's more that's going on with Delta and DU, but I think our membership is, um, uh, you know, the, the money part is important, but the advocacy part is the most important part about what we do. Yeah. That was one thing that um, kind of opened my eyes um, about once I started volunteering a little bit more with DU, it was, they were really, you know, it's good about the money. Like everyone's money's good, but just saying that you're a member or like signing up and being a, you know, a voice and someone that's like, hey, this person supports this is uh, super important to organizations like yours. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, since we are a grassroots organization and we rely on those grassroots people, you know, to make phone calls, send emails, you know, show up at meetings, all to influence kind of, policy is that we need the people you know i mean yeah. we're nothing you and i can talk on this phone and i can go try to you know call a you know a senator here or governor there whoever it is and yeah they may take my phone call but you know now that we have forty thousand members you know they listen a little bit differently when we had two thousand members and and so it's, that's that's the people on the ground and those are people you know in their state you know that they need to listen to and you know and Kansas, you know, we just started a new chapter there and you know, we've already started working, you know, kind of with the local, you know, fish and game folks and, um, you know, elected officials. And, and so I, that's kind of the way we work. And, you know, without those people, we are nothing. Yeah. So to, uh, you know, the layman, the guy that, um, you know, maybe isn't, uh, you know, deeply involved in, in volunteering, but just wants to be a member and whatnot. What what does that membership look like to him on on a yearly basis? Is he going to a uh, is he going to a banquet or is he going to you know little uh, you know like you said meetings and things of that nature? Yeah. What, what does it look like? So membership is twenty five bucks a year, so it's I think a pretty easy entry point. And then after that, like we really don't do big banquets. Um, you know, we've kind of you know I think we've all been to those banquets and they raise good money, but if you've been to one banquet, you've almost been to them all. Um, and I'm so we try to change that model over from our banquet last night. So <laughs> exactly. Right. And so, um, but it was a good time, right. You know I mean? And, I, and I'm not saying that they are, but you almost know what to expect when you get there. Um, and that you should probably drink a, a little bit more water than you did last night. Um, the, uh, but we have, you know, we have pint nights, which are at local breweries or, or bars or whatever, and have people come together and, and t- kind of talk about the issues that are going on at that point. Um, we do storytelling nights. We do, um, wild game cook-offs um and we have this awesome program this summer that was its third year where we have this hike to hunt where people get together and are hiking in preparation you know for 
the fall season. And so we have this, like, it's, it's like a really community centric piece where we're not seeing each other once a year, but you know, we're seeing each other multiple times of the year. And, um, and so I think that's the first piece. I think the second piece is then again, you know, it's, it's how much you want to get involved. If you want to just be a member and get our magazine four times a year and, you know, give us a little bit of scratch, like awesome. I'm glad to have you on the team. If you want to um, show up at a meeting and voice your opinion about X issue, you know, even better. If you want to um, head out to Washington, D.C. with us, you know, and do it when we do a fly-in, like almost probably the best. And so there's like just these different ways for people to engage at a grassroots level. And, um, and really that's up to, you know, you as the individual. And, you know, we're not a place, I think, you know, again, I'm, you asked me this, so I guess I can say it again, but I'm, I'm 44 and I'm, you know, there's only one person or no, two people that are older than me on staff. And so we're a very young staff and we're a very young organization. Our organization, 70% of our members are 45 and younger. And, and so this isn't a place where you got to spend your time and um, pay your dues until you can have leadership positions. You know, we recognize talent, we recognize uh, energy and uh, we try to facilitate that right away. And so, you know, no matter who you are, what kind of background you have, um, there's a place for you at BHA and uh, if you're willing to put in some work. Why as a duck hunter, why the heck should I care about BHA? <laughs> uh, great question. So I think, you know, first and foremost, let's talk about like, you know, public water. I think public water is absolutely essential to hunting birds. And, you know, I grew up in Montana and I had access to some private property, but the majority of what I hunted was public land and continue to hunt today. Um, you know, as, you know, I think, you know, I have friends all over this country and they buy into duck leases, which I think is totally fine. And, um, you know, I think there's definitely a place for that, but, you know, public water is a place where it doesn't matter, you know, how much money you have, if you got, you know, some energy and a couple of feet and maybe a little kayak, they can get out and go do it. So, um, preserving these places that I think that are open for everybody, you know, and I think there's a couple of things that we're doing there. I've already talked about a couple of, well, reiterate. You know, it's this open fields piece that I helped pass back at, you know, my days at TRCP. Like every single time the farm bill comes up, we've got to fight for dollars to put into open fields. And so uh, that's something that BHA is definitely committed to and we work with other folks to do. And um, so I think that's why it matters. Um, I think that, you know, we've talked about the Land and Water Conservation Fund and the importance of that. It's something that's probably our number one priority that, again, you know, that provides money uh, to, pr to promote access. Um, and then, you know, we talked about NACA, the North American Wildlife Conservation Act, which is really about habitat. I would say, you know, at a local level, it's really about access. And I'll give you a couple examples. So, uh, South Dakota, and there's these lakes in South Dakota that have been open to public hunting. Uh, you know, public money has been spent on boat ramps and, and you know, great waterfowl hunting opportunities. If you've never been to South Dakota to hunt ducks, it's world class. Um, and, some private landowners decided that they didn't like duck hunters out there. So they decided that they were going to fight that and, and start privatizing these lakes. And so they shut down a lot of lakes. Um, we worked there at the local legislature to kind of find a compromise, which I'm not super happy about, but it is a compromise where basically we've been splitting lakes in half. Um, and so we still have an opportunity to hunt there, which is not the whole lake, which again, I don't think it's ideal, but it was better than nothing um, right. down Louisiana. There's the Catahoula Lake, which has been a, it's a huge waterfowl destination. Um, same thing, private landowners shut that off. Um, we've been working with the state. Um, the state actually um, and it, and it entered into a lawsuit that's within the Supreme Court right now. We're not part of that lawsuit besides uh, we did a, uh, this is going to get super technical, but we did like an amicus brief um, to talk about kind of uh, um, just in support of the state. And so that's, that's literally in the Supreme court right now. And we're looking for a decision there in either January or February of this year. And that's just on one lake in Louisiana. We've also got some access issues just because that marsh has been disappearing down there for about almost 80 years. And so that's caused conflicts where people are putting up makeshift gates and keeping people out of bays that they've you know traditionally been able to hunt. Yeah. So yeah. we're working at, you know, for, we're working on, uh, uh, kind of a legislation solution there as well. I think, you know, the courts are just not a place to do that. I think it's, you know, better to find compromise um, at a legislative level. Um, here in Montana, which I'll just say one more, you know, we're defending stream access. You know, stream access is super important to trout fishing here in Montana. And if you don't know what it is, it's like you have a river 
um, when that river runs hot in the spring, real super high, you know, it's called the high water mark. And so we have access in Montana on the bottom of the river and then up to the high water mark. And so great for trout fishing. You know, if I want to pull my boat over and fish a little bit or have a lunch, I'm awesome. But what that does for me for waterfowl hunting is I've got spots where I can, you know, where there's a legally public access. I can get in. Once I get to the river, now I have a ton of legal access. And I'll walk, you know, either one or two miles upstream or one or two miles downstream and get to a spot where some birds are holding. And without that access, I wouldn't have those opportunities. And so I think if I had to sum it up, Ben, I mean, we're working on large-scale habitat stuff out in D.C. and then access out in D.C. and then access at a local level. What's it like? Um, I imagine that you frequently find yourself in in conversations with lawmakers and congressmen, Republicans, uh, Democrats, everybody, you know, trying to tell them these stories and get them to understand what we're talking about. Uh, it, what's it like? Um, and kind of depends on who you're talking to. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> there's, there's some folks that recognize the importance of hunting and fishing, not only as kind of a a tradition, kind of family values, I would say the the good, clean living that that is, and then the economic value. I think people, some folks, you know, definitely recognize that and others don't. And so, with the folks that recognize that, it's always trying to, you know, um, you know, figure out kind of what the solutions are to maybe the problems of the day. For the people that don't recognize that, you know, I think those conversations are tougher. And so, you're trying to find, you know, common ground in other places. And I think, you know, one thing that I think hunters and anglers, I mean, waterfowlers in particular know is that like clean water is super, super important. Yeah. And so, you know, without clean water, like we don't, I mean, we don't have the invertebrate populations that help, you know, really bolster our duck populations. And so to me, I think thinking about clean water, you know, is one of the like bigger unifiers for folks that don't hunt and fish. And so that's, you know, I think you can always find common values, but, you know, I think one thing to keep in mind is all these elected officials they're people too. And, you know, at the end of the day, they work for us and, and, and so treat them just like you would anybody else. You know, I mean, I think be cordial um, when you're talking to them and then, uh, but, and don't be intimidated, you know, again, they're just people. And so um, that's the way I do it. And I think that's the way I try to counsel people. Like when we're flying out to DC or when they're meeting people at a local level is to, is really try to find common ground, be honest, and then realize they're just people too. Yeah. I always find it, you know, it has to be one of those things where once you sit down and explain it to somebody um, and how it's not just, you know, shooting ducks and killing deer um, and you talk about all the, you know, the good things, people usually go, oh, yeah, well, dang, that's pretty nice. But right. like, how does that, how does like, I just don't know how people don't know that in 2019, um, how that rhetoric is not, you know, echoing. Uh, and I, it's just, it's strange. And I just always wondered if it was even at the, you know, the highest levels of, you know, government, if it's, you know, it's something that's being brought up every day or once a week or what it is, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a constant education. I mean, you know, there's, there's hunters, you know, as you probably know, that have no idea about kind of where duck stamp dollars go. Right. You know, they, they know they got to buy their federal duck stamp every single year. But, you know, they're like, I don't know what that's for. That's, maybe that's just like a license that I have to buy. I don't really know where that money goes. And I, I, So I think there's it's always a constant education, and whether that's within our own ranks or outside of that. And I don't ever, I don't ever fault anybody for that or, or uh, um, you know, I, I look at that almost as a challenge, Ben, you know, and I yeah. think it's like, yeah. it's a super important thing. You know, I've been like education advocacy is really what BHA does. And I think, you know, like, you know, what you're doing with this podcast and, you know, I think other venues where we can educate people again. I mean, the duck stamp is super simple when, you know, you talk to people about how that helps pay for our national wildlife refugees in particular, whether that's maintaining what they are now or purchasing kind of new areas. It's like, like light bulbs start to go off in their head and they, that's something that they can be proud of. And so that, you know, when somebody asks them kind of what it does, then they'll be educated the next time to be able to pass along that information. That's really you know, I think one of the most important roles that we have as as leaders and also just kind of uh, hunter conservationists is to really tell the story and then hopefully have other people, you know, pass that on as well. 
Yeah. I, I think though, too, it's really hard for people to uh, empathize with it without the emotional connection to it. You know, you and I, when sure. we think of that, so, you know, some of our, the best times we've had have been out there or um, we, we'd have an emotional connection to all of it. Whereas other people, yeah. Oh yeah. That, that sounds great, Ben. You know, but <laughs> not until I, you know, took a, a new guy duck hunting. He's like, dude, I get it. I get why you're saying right. like, you're crazy about <laughs> right. this stuff. And he goes, <laughs> He goes, it's not like personally, like, he's like, I'm not going to go do this every weekend, but I mean, I get what fires you up about it. And I get why you care so much. And I don't, I think until you are like exposed to that or have that emotional bridge in there, just, I don't think you can, I don't think you can, uh, accurately understand it. So. Yeah. But I mean, I can hear it in your voice, right? You got the duck fever, you know, and it's because you've been out there in the marsh. And I think. Partly, I can tell your excitement, like, and we're talking over the phone right now. Like, I can hear that. And I think that's partly, again, like, our jobs is to kind of uh, tell that, tell those stories and kind of exude that passion. And, you know, at the very least, somebody understands that this is something that's super important to you. You know, they may never go do it, uh, but at least they'll understand how important it is. And then, again, I think finding things that are universal, like clean water to talk about is always, right. you know, a good, way, a good path. <laughs> I did a little bit of research and uh, listened to some other podcasts that you've been on. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I wrote down uh, that I thought was just super interesting, uh, you, you were on a roll about something. You said, you know, um, it's hard for me. I, I have to, when I present the information, I can just talk about the doom and gloom and uh, fire and brimstone. Um, I don't think <laughs> you didn't use those words, but that was how it was uh, portrayed in my head. Um, and then you have to like, yeah, we got to talk about the successes too. And we can't always come at it. So uh, like, oh, everything's on fire right now. We got to save this. We got to save that. Even though that's maybe how you feel in your heart. Uh, you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, there's always going to be pressures on our, on our outdoor kind of, you know, legacy that was kind of gifted to us i don't think that's ever going to go away um and you know with the pressures and you know that i think they ebb and flow right now there's a few that you know make me super nervous um but the you know i think at the end of the day what we're selling is this just uniquely american attribute where you and i and anybody listening to this you know we live like like kings you know, and like nobody else in the world has what we have here in America. Um, I think, you know, Canada is definitely close. In some ways, it's better in places. Um, New Zealand maybe has some good public land kind of hunting opportunities. But the United States, that's way different. And and we should be proud of that and um, and and really celebrate that. And then take that, you know, to help us, you know, on this day-to-day -day kind of management of those public lands, public waters. And, and while... You know, sometimes the weight of the world, you know, it feels like it's on your shoulders. Um, I think reminding ourselves about how awesome things are um, is a good thing. I would also say if you look at history, you know, in America, every time these pressures have kind of happened, like great things have happened you know, as a result. And so if you look at, you know, market killing for waterfowl, it was happening in you know late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, you know, basically wiping waterfowl you know, off the face of this country i don't know if you've ever seen punt guns and those yep. big old guns yep. that they, you know put on the front of a john boat and kill a whole raft of birds like that was happening to put food on the table you know in new york and dc chicago san francisco all these big cities and then we decided well we're not gonna you know we're not gonna um you can't profit off the sale of wildlife anymore and you know you can't do that for either food i mean a lot of women were putting uh, feathers in their hats back then and so we stopped the sale of kind of wildlife and you know, that was a that was a huge thing that hunters did and um and good things came out of that bad you know you look at like the the dirty 30s you know and the lids coming off the prairie and you have the dust bowl and you know waterfowl populations are in trouble then that's you know like we did the pippin robertson act you know to tax ourselves on ammunition and guns and then you know we passed the duck stamp we signed what was that signed into law like 1934 and so good things came out of bad you look at like the 60s and like you know there's rivers like basically on fire, like on fire. Um, and, you know, we passed the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. And like, that's, that's really why we have, you know, some of the cleanest air and cleanest water in the world is because of that. And that came out of bad times. And so what I feel like the weight of the world 
is on our shoulders. I'm always kind of think about how that galvanizes people and how us com- how it compels us to act. And and I think you know so when you feel like the you know the way the world's on your shoulders, I like try to figure out okay, how is that going to bring more people together and like what is the solution? And for me. You know, um, I'm always looking for solutions here at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. We're always looking for solutions, and uh, so that it isn't just that doom and gloom, and that you know, we can try to figure a path forward. Where are we at right now? Are we in? Are we in a heyday? Are we in a, a good thing? Or like, where are we at? Are we slight? Are we slipping? What's going on? I feel like we're slipping a little bit. You know, I, and, I, and I'd say that for two reasons. I think that you know, if we just stick with waterfowl, waterfowl populations have been all time highs. You know for the last you know five years decade and that you know there's certain pockets obviously we can talk about where they're not doing as good but in general you know waterfowl populations are doing well i mean there's turkeys everywhere uh you know there's the white-tailed deer populations are doing great and so i feel like we're like almost complacent a little bit yeah um, and then you look at you know like waterfowl in particular the two major threats to that right now would be kind of the conservation reserve program, like less and less acres being enrolled there, less and less money being spent, you know, there. And I don't know how much your listeners know about that, but you know, it's basically paying farmers to put land in fallow. And so the, these are great nesting areas for waterfowl in particular, like waterfowl can nest up to a mile away from water. And they do a lot of that in the conservation reserve program. And now that program is going away. There's less nesting habitat. Um, so I'm nervous about that piece. Uh, you know, this, this latest kind of um, administrative rule by the administration on the Clean Water Act that yep. takes away protections for temporary wetlands. You know, temporary wetlands are only these wetlands that are in the spring or, you know, wet because there's a lot of water around. That's where the invertebrate habit, you know, life is huge. And so, you know, a young hen mother with a brood, like, she needs those uh, those uh, bugs to help grow her, her uh, chicks, and and so there's, those protections have been taken away there. And so I like there's some definite threats right now. And again, I think that um, it's galvanizing people, um, and it's having people you know from all sorts of walks of life come together. And an example of that, you know, I did talk about the Land Water Conservation Fund earlier, and how we got that you know, passed this last spring. But what I didn't tell you is that, you know, that vote in the Senate was 92 to 8. That vote in the House was 363 to 62. Like, those are overwhelming majorities. Those are veto-proof majorities, which, like, tell me there's not many other things that they're voting on out there in D.C. right now that's like that, right? And so that gives me some hope. Um, And that's because, you know, it wasn't because there was a bunch of senators and congressmen out in D.C. that were like, well, this is a good idea. It's because the people demanded it, you know, the people said, you have to do this for us. And so, you know, while you may be on one issue on healthcare over here on the wall or whatever, all these other issues that are out there, conservation is where we kind of came together in public lands and public waters. And so I feel like, you know, that gives me hope, but there's some definite threats and, uh, you know, and to tend to, you know, kind of ignore those, I think is at our peril. What's, what's the, uh, what's the thing that like you wake up at night and you're like, oh man that that freaking thing like i can't believe it's what or like what's what's your nightmare like right now i mean my nightmare that's a great question um I and mean, i think you know i've talked about a couple of the things that are going on i think one that's never going to go away that is probably the one that like freaks me out the most is this idea of like the sale of public lands um you know we're again we have 640 million acres that is yours it's mine it's anybody that's listening to this like we have this gigantic vast kingdom that is very diverse that belongs to us all and the idea you know of selling that to the highest bidder you know and like i just that's what keeps me up at night and you know i feel like if you know as as the population grows in this country and, you know, hunting and fishing, even if our numbers started to grow, we would, we would still be, um, you know, less and less of a percentage. Like these places that provide access to us all are just going to be vitally important going forward. And, you know, they already play a, a vital role and I think they're going to be even more important as we go forward. So, you know, what freaks me out probably the most is, you know, when senators talk about, you know, the sale of public lands and talk about you know how they're just, you know, they're, they give no contribution to society and um, that we should get rid of them. And that, that to me um, is just a, you know, a fundamentally different philosophy than I share. Is there a, like a list of uh, like 
people like how do you how can you go <laughs> and you can find like okay oh man my senator actually does not like uh, public lands or or would like to sell it you know is there like a, a like a good list bad list for conservation people so I, <laughs> That's you know awesome. saying? as as local yeah, as yeah. local elections come up for so people can kind of weigh those things because I think I feel like <laughs> I feel like you have to you have to study a lot to make the right decision when it comes to voting. Uh, very astute on um, the way you're thinking about that. I think that, um, I mean, the short answer is, is that those lists, you know, don't exist. I mean, as we're talking today in a robust way, um, you know, there's I talked about my sister earlier who works for the Montana conservation voters. There's a national organization called the league of conservation voters. And so they do, um, definitely they do kind of scorecards, um, and, and show people how people vote. That is way less hunting centric and it's much you know more kind of on the environmental side. And so that would give an indication, but I don't think it tells the whole story. Um, and, and so last election cycle, we did candidate questionnaires in three states, Colorado, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, New Mexico. And so, you know, we're a, we're a nonprofit. We can't tell you who to vote for, but what we can do is we can report the news. And so, you know, we asked all the candidates exactly the same questions and then reported that news and then let people make up their own minds. And so that was in three states. You know, we're coming up on another election cycle here in 2020. And we plan to do that in as many states as possible. We have, you know, chapters in 45 states now. And so um, potentially we could do all 45. But to answer your question, there isn't, like, there isn't that, like, one-stop shop. Like, one to say that person's good, that person's bad. Um, and we can't do that at BHA, like vote for this person, vote for this person. But what we can do is kind of, you know, paint a picture about, you know, when there is votes, let's say on um, Land and Water Conservation Fund or North American Wetland Conservation Act, we can inform you at that point about that vote. And then you can kind of make, start to make your own decisions that way. Right. But I would say, I mean, one of the reasons why we're trying to do these Canada questionnaires is for the exact thing that you brought up is there's really not a one-stop shop for that right now. And, um, you know, and, and we're going to try to make that a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I, of course, looking, always looking for the cheat sheet or the, the easy sheet. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Be nice. But, um, so question, I, as I look at the map of, uh, BHA places, uh, like w- where BHA is, I look at my home state of Nebraska and I don't see anything. Um, um, in Nebraska, That's nobody hunts there. Yeah, no, yeah, nobody hunts I'm in Nebraska. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was, I, I got to this. I got to the Sandhills last fall, <laughs> and what a special place that oh. is. And the Sandhills are just. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about some public land that you can go get lost in? That's a yeah. I mean, just phenomenal. That so, or just the Platte River too. I don't know. If absolutely, what a waterfowl yeah. destination that is. You know, and like yeah. I think about all the the cranes and stuff that are there. Like it's pretty special, and so. Um, here's what I'll tell you is we got five states we don't have. So Hawaii, Nebraska, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Delaware. And, um, there is a chapter in the works right now in Nebraska, um, and in South Carolina and in West Virginia, we, we go places, Ben, where we have energy, you know, we've been growing so fast for the last six years that, you know, we don't, we can't afford to like go out and prospect places. We have to go kind of where we have energy. So um we're starting to get a bunch of energy in nebraska and um you know for the like probably the two reasons that you talk about the plat and then the the sand hills and so um i would if i'm a betting man i'd say that we'd have a chapter um come on board in uh, in june next year at our annual meeting where we kind of bring on all our chapters and and that's really because of the energy that's kind of on the ground um and uh um and the leadership that's starting to form around that and you know ty stubblefield who kind of does all our new chapters he has much more of a pulse on that but uh you know we talked before this and i mean he he's pretty definite that we'll have a chapter there in nebraska as well yeah good uh and so if you're in one of those states that you just listen to you know go check out bha's uh, website and uh your guys's newsletter is really great uh, i've been appreciating that a lot uh it now this actually- is the electronic one yeah. The magazine. Yeah. No, the electronic one. Sorry. The email. Cool. Um, yeah. It's been really great. Um, I have not received yet. Uh, I've, I've only really, uh, I've only been a BHA member, I think for like two or three months now. 
Um, Dude, you know, welcome I've, to the team. No, oh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> thanks. Uh, you know, I've been aware of it for the last probably year and a half, two years. Um, but uh, I don't know. I just recently just started digging into it, and whether you know that's evolution of uh, myself as uh, you know conservationist or whatever it is. I I looked at it and I said, why? What? I've always been a proponent of uh, if you're going to give you know thirty five dollars to Ducks Unlimited. Um, might as well give another 35 to uh, Delta and the, you know, now BHA is on that list as well. Uh, Cause I don't, you know, put your help, these play help these different organizations out that have your best interests at heart. Um, if you don't have anything local and you know, you don't have the fire to start it up, you know, volunteer at the organization that fits you best locally. Um, but yeah. So if you're in well, one so- of those States, if you're in one of those States, you know, uh, go check it out and see if it's for you. So. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's again like we go where the energy is, and um, and it's a lot of fun being a part of this organization. And uh, I think we've got a new take on conservation, and check it out. We talked a lot about doom and gloom, right? For the last yeah. probably twenty minutes. What's the, what's <laughs> not the too bright, bad? What's the bright sunshine though? What what do we got? What do you you know? What are you excited for? I mean. Oh, man, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And, you know, I talked about our kind of our demographics earlier on the kind of the age piece. And I'm super excited about us, you know, having 70% of our members being 45 and younger, because I feel like that's like this next generation of conservation leaders. And, you know, you look at many other organizations and it's flipped the other way where, you know, maybe 70% of the members are 65 and older, you know? And so I feel like I'm excited about this next generation of kind of hunters. Um, I'm excited that, you know, within those demographics that um, we're very split uh, pretty evenly on, on uh, our political affiliations. And so, you know, again, like conservation is bringing people together. Public lands is bringing people together. So I'm excited about that. Um, You know, I, I guess I'm just excited about the people that are you know part of our organization. You know, I, we, uh, just this uh like last month uh, we have an ohio chapter that just became a chapter last year and they uh worked with the state agency there was some property that had traditionally been open to the public it was timberland that was now going to be sold they worked with the state agency they worked with the state legislature and lo and behold they picked up thirty-eight thousand acres of new public land in uh, ohio it's going to be there in perpetuity and oh, that's awesome yeah. awesome stuff um, you know, our chapter in Colorado, there was some state land that was unavailable for hunting and um, worked with the governor, worked with the state legislature. Now there's a hundred thousand acres with an option for 400,000 more. And to me, you got people on the ground doing things. And so when I see kind of the energy, you know, that I see every time I travel across the country, like I'm super stoked about this kind of legacy and like where we're headed. And, um, you know, I think that momentum is uh is building and i think that you know that momentum uh breeds success and so um you know that's you know what we're doing here at bha with other partners as well you know we just we're working with pheasants forever this year um at their big annual uh meeting to have like this public lands pavilion which i've never done before um and we're gonna be a big part of that and like really teaching kind of like pheasant hunters which have provided you know primarily been on private land like what public land kind of hunting looks like and so um i'm stoked about that and and um you know the glass is always half full and i try not to get too dim and gloom and if i do you know i'll let myself be like that for a little bit and then slap myself upside the head like (laughs) hey man it's not so bad (laughs) nice all right uh so as we kind of wind down here um it kind of nice hey there folks Hey, sorry about uh, the conversation cutting off there. Had a little bit of technical difficulties, but I hope that you enjoyed um, this conversation that I had with Land. Uh, Like I said, the last five minutes or so got cut off, uh, but no big deal because uh, we, me and Land talked, and I think we're gonna we're gonna have him back on the show uh, in a couple more episodes just to talk about a little bit more about public land hunting and uh, how to get involved with BHA. Uh, not only that, but uh, get a little bit more uh, of his stories and and uh, some fun duck stuff. So, hey, folks, uh, appreciate it. I will see you on Friday with our podcast review and a special little segment I got planned. So can't wait for that. 
and uh, go ahead and check out SRB Field Rests and Oak Barn Beef. Uh, they have some really uh, uh, great stuff that they're they're doing. SRB Field Rests has a ten percent discount. Um, the stuff is really quite good, so you, you need to go check it out. And then uh, Oak Barn Beef, they are. If you go on to our thefowlfront.com, there's a link in there with Oak Barn Beef, and you can uh, sign up for a chance to win um, a free box delivered to your house of quality, uh, you know, farm raised, uh, excuse me, family farm raised beef, uh, straight to your doorstep and, uh, all for just signing up and maybe getting one or two emails. Um, it's, it's pretty great. So, all right, guys, like I said, I will see you on Friday and then on Monday. Have a good one. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.